Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 273 recap on Twitter Spaces. Today we're going to be discussing a security disclosure affecting Lightning implementations, a paper about BitVM and how arbitrary programs execution outcomes can control the flow of Bitcoins, a proposed BIP for adding MUSIG2 fields to PSBTs, six interesting updates to ecosystem software, and we specifically highlight a Bitcoin Core PR for mini tap script and more. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Optech and also executive director at Brink, where we fund Bitcoin open source developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Merch. I work at Chaincode Labs. Robin? Hi, I'm Robin. Uh, I work on SilverSync and uh, I created BitVM. Antoine? Hey, uh, I'm Antoine Poisson. I work at Without Sardine and I contribute to Bitcoin Core. Thank you both for joining us this week. We have a few news items we'll cover in sequential order. The first one is a security disclosure affecting Lightning implementations. The mailing list post title included the nickname, All Your Mempool Are Belong to Us. And this was actually a, a disclosure that happened late in the newsletter publication process. So we only gave sort of a high-level overview and link to the specific issue that Antoine Riard posted on the Bitcoin Dev and Lightning mailing list. We plan to have a bit more detail in next week's newsletter, but there were a few items that I saw in the post that I thought were interesting. Antoine writes, amid technical discussions on L2 payment channels and incentive compatibility of the mempool against denial of service rules, anti-denial of service rules, a new transaction relay jamming attack affecting lightning channels was discovered. This attack is practical and immediately exposed lightning routing hops carrying HTLC traffic to loss of potential funds security risks. And I believe that Antoine is referring to this class of attacks as replacement cycling attacks. And as of now, since the, the security vulnerability was responsibly disclosed, Core Lightning, Eclair, LDK, and LND all contain mitigations that make the attack less practical. Merch, that's the level of depth that I went into with this one since we alluded to covering it more in next week's newsletter. I'm not sure if you have any insights on this. I glanced at it and it seems to me that uh, basically the attack would require two participants along a multi-hop payment to coordinate against the user between them. And it would essentially involve forcing the uh, forwarder to go on chain with an well outdated penalty transaction that has a very low fee rate while that is either not going to confirm or not even going to get into the mempool because the fee rate on the penalty transaction is pre negotiated so they cannot bump the penalty transaction and then the um the two attackers would take first back the funds by also going on chain with the htlc or by letting it time out and then also redeeming the htlc because the penalty transaction couldn't go through due to the low fee rates 
That's what I understood briefly. Glancing at it, if someone has better information, please correct me. I don't think it's related to the penalty transaction. It's just related to the commitment transaction and going to chain uh, through the HGLC success on one side and preventing the honest node from being able to claim the HGLC using the HGLC success on the other side. Um, yeah, correct. It's uh, not the penalty transaction, just the commitment transaction with the HTLC in two different variants. Thanks. I can speak a little bit about this. That's all right. Can you hear me? Do it. Yeah, so this is about the HTLC transaction. So essentially, as a router, you want to make sure HTLC routing is atomic for you. So if, if uh, someone has offered HTLC to you, and you've offered it to someone else downstream that if the person downstream claims it, that you get the pre-image and then you can claim the incoming, right? The upstream one. And so the, this is essentially a game that uh, people could play where um, they, you put the time, as soon as it's time, so let's say you don't get the HTLC pre-image, right? Intentionally, they withhold it. So you put the timeout in the mempool. Then the attacker sees the timeout in the mempool, immediately RBFs it with their success and then RBFs their own success with another transaction, right? So basically the pre-image will never hit the chain. So they keep doing this essentially. So you never hear about the, you never see on chain the uh, HTC pre-image and thus you can never pull it in. So then the incoming will then time out, right? And then the downstream will then take it. So essentially it's just violating the atomicity there, if that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of like, this is assuming a pretty strong network level attacker where they can see a lot of things in various mempools, connect to lots of miners, but it's something to be engineered uh, to defend against. In Gibbs, are you familiar with the mitigations to this issue that help, but but only make it less practical? Yeah, I mean, so I have my own opinions, but yeah, I can just describe uh, the mitigations. So some do things like looking at the mempool. So if you see your... If you see the HTLC timeout get double spent by their other person's success, and then that gets RBF'd as well, that means you can immediately re just replay essentially your transaction. You actually you do need to tweak the witness TXID to get your node to gossip it again, but you know so you can like for example resign the transaction, and rebroadcast it again um, with the different nonce. Um, so that basically every time they cycle it out, you put it back in. And remember that every time they cycle it out, they're paying fees every single time they do this. So imagine within a block, you do this 10 times. Um, that means they're paying 10 times the going rate and fees to cycle this out, if you can understand that. Um, and so basically that's one. So you could look at the mempool and rebroadcast, or you could just blindly rebroadcast. So I know, I know from more familiarity that core lightning simply just rebroadcasts at a, at a certain interval, right? So it'll, it'll try again, right? So like five, you know, two minutes later, it just rebroadcasts again, grinds it new nonce and rebroadcasts it such that again, the attacker would have to, let's say if it's every two minutes and every block is about 10 minutes each that um, the attacker has to pay basically five transaction fees to stop you from getting any transaction in that block. And then you can imagine, right, uh, another mitigation is extending your expiry delta, meaning how long you have to get this into the mempool is your security parameter. So if you increase this, if you let, let's say you double the security parameter, now it's twice as expensive on top for the attacker, right? And so essentially multiplying the cost and then trying to reduce the success rate of the attacker simultaneously. 
reducing their expected value. Okay, that makes sense. Anyways, you, you guys can go over it more in depth next week too. Yeah, I threw a Hail Mary to Antoine Riard uh, this morning, seeing if he was able to join us, but he, he wasn't. So maybe we'll have him explain some of the background and how he came across this next week. I think we can move on in the newsletter to the second news item, which we titled Payments Contingent on Arbitrary Computation. Um, you may also have seen this over Bitcoin Twitter the last week by its name, BitVM. And we have the author, Robin, here to explain the paper and uh, introduce the idea and what the feedback's been from the community. Robin, I'll, I'll let you have the floor here. Okay, um, thanks. So BitVM is a computing paradigm to express Turing complete smart contracts on Bitcoin. Um, what it essentially does is it mimics um, a ZK, not a ZK rollup, sorry, an optimistic rollup on Bitcoin. That means um, you, you have two roles, you have a prover and a verifier. And the prover simply makes a claim that some um, function returned for some particular inputs, some particular output. And if that claim is correct, then everybody's happy and um, people can just proceed bilaterally. But um, if the prover lied, then the verifier can disprove them succinctly. And this way we can essentially compute any function on Bitcoin. What is, a, Robin, maybe, maybe give a, a 101. What's the most basic uh, example that you found people can understand for doing something like this? Yeah, something very simple would be that you could play games like tic-tac-toe or chess or something like that. And so maybe walk through the process. What, what would need to happen, you know, from, from the conceptual idea that folks understand of like tic-tac-toe, what, how does that translate into um, being able to do anything related to on-chain? Um, yeah, well, in the case of tic-tac-toe, um, or like in general, in the case of games, you have two phases. The first one is um, the inputs, which is the player making their moves. And the second phase is to evaluate um, how the game ended and who won the game. And um, yeah, the moves, that would be quite simple because people just commit to particular uh, inputs. Um, they just simply reveal hashes to commit to inputs. And um, once they come to a stage in the game where uh, yeah, you can, where, where one of the parties won, then um, you can simply execute a circuit and that circuit just um, yeah, evaluates the, the game rules of, of the game given that particular state that the users, um, yeah, that the users inputs led to. And, and maybe you can get into how the, the rules of the game in this example are encoded and, and how oh, yeah. Taproot comes into that. Yes, of course. Um, so the scripting capabilities of Bitcoin script are quite limited. Um, we cannot do um, many high-level things. For example, uh, the, the, the arithmetics, they are... Um, um, the, the, the most complex arithmetic that we can do is addition or subtraction. We cannot even do multiplication or division or something like that. So um, the, the expressiveness of this language is very limited. Um, but what it can do is it can express Boolean expressions. You can do and, or, not, nand, 
um, XOR and stuff like that. And since we can um, represent any function as a Boolean circuit, um, we can essentially represent any function. And um, yeah, that allows us to express the tic-tac-toe game rules in form of Boolean circuits in Bitcoin. And um, also, like we are limited by the script size limit. The script size limit is currently four megabytes. Like in, essentially you could have a single transaction with like a huge script of four megabytes. Um, but yeah, it's not very practical. In practice, we want we want it to be as compact as possible. So uh, what we can do is we split up that big circuit into small chunks. And then the verifier can essentially perform something like a binary search over um, the claim of, of, of the prover and find that particular part of the circuit where the prover um, yeah, um, made an inconsistent claim or where, where he lied essentially about some execution. And um, this way we can um, disprove even very complex circuits that would be way too large to um, execute them on chain. Um, we can disprove them um, very succinctly within just a couple rounds of um, uh, of, 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 of a game of like um, query and response. So the, the, the verifier asks for a particular gate or like for a particular subset of the circuit. And then the prover has to provide um, the inputs and outputs to that particular subset of the circuit. And um, yeah, if if they ever equivocate and give um, conflicting inputs, then the verifier can take the prover's money. We have a question from the audience. Moth, do you have a question or comment for Robin? Yes, I do. Thank you. I just wanted to ask, is there a correlation between a bit, uh, the concept of a bit, to a Satoshi, or is it more correlated to a UTXO, or you can have a few so-and-so bits uh, for every UTXO? Um, you're going to have multiple bit commitments per UTXO. So um, it's, it's essentially like having variables, and you can have some variable, let's call it A, and in one script you give it the value I don't know, 42. And then if you give that same variable um, a different uh, value in a different script, then uh, you automatically um, reveal a fraud proof that the verifier can use to take your money. What are the limitations? You, you mentioned the, the example of, well, we can't put this all in a, in a single transaction, so you kind of hid the programming or the the gates within uh, Taproot script path, if I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, but there's some limitations there as well. Is, is there a limitation uh, to the programmability of the type of arbitrary program execution you're talking about? And if so, maybe get into that. Um, I would say in terms of like how large of a computation we can express, um, we are almost unlimited for basically any practical purpose. Um, so we can express very large circuits since we can do that binary search, which is quite efficient. So even if the circuit becomes like billions of gates, we can find um, yeah, the, the, the incorrect gate, gates within, I don't know, uh, 30 queries or something. Um, however, there is a fundamental limitation in the sense that um, this entire BitVM works in the prover verifier setting. So you have two parties, you have a prover making claims and a verifier verifying these claims. 
And that is very different than uh, what we are used to from other smart contracting platforms, because usually every user can permissionlessly interact with every contract without having to sign up or without having to participate in some um, setup ceremony or something. And um, BitVM is very limited in that sense. The best we can do so far is um, that we can have one prover and multiple verifiers, for example, one prover and 100 verifiers. And if a single of these verifiers is honest, then uh, they can hold the, the prover accountable. And um, yeah, that can give us, um, for example, bridges or like two-way packs um, that are similar to federated two-way packs, but they are better than federated two-way packs in the sense that uh, yeah, you require only a single honest party for uh, the pack to be secure. And um, yeah, the more people participate, the better this assumption is. Like one in a hundred is not as good as one in a thousand or one in ten thousand. Can I ask a question real quick? Yes, please. Yeah, so I had a question. Um, how so in this the you got the verifier and the prover. How many steps can the verifier force, right? Because you said, okay, there's like a billion, let's say there's a billion gates. Could the verifier sloppily select challenges to just lock up UTXOs for a billion steps? Or is there like a way of forcing their hand to do something smarter? Does that make sense? Yeah, the verifier, like you're, what you're saying is, um, how do we deal with a malicious verifier that doesn't want exactly. to? Exactly. Yeah, they don't actually want the funds to get unlocked. Yeah. Or they want to delay it as long as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, that is definitely possible. Like um, a verifier can essentially waste their queries because the number of queries has to be limited. Because um, another case is that a malicious verifier um, makes a baseless dispute. Like they claim that the prover's claim was incorrect, even though it was correct. Then uh, challenging the prover should end at some point. At some point, the prover should be. Uh, yeah, sh should win and uh, it yeah should be enough of, of disputing him if he's uh, if he's correct. So the number of total queries has to be limited, but uh, yeah, it has to be uh, exactly as many queries as you need to disprove any statement that is incorrect. So uh, yeah, if you have a billion gates and you can perfectly binary search them, then it would have like these thirty queries or something. And yeah, of course, the circuit has to be designed in a way that you can always um, disprove the incorrect prover. Um, also, the other thing is like, I think you were aiming at the um, multi-verifier setting where you have like 100 verifiers and a single prover. Yeah, um, my my question was just about the first one, but you can continue. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, like in, in the multi-verifier setting, it's important that uh, you can run these challenges in parallel. So if one of these verifiers is dishonest and just wastes their queries, then uh, that doesn't matter because as long as there is a single honest verifier, um, they can run in parallel the, yeah, the, the correct um, challenge and then uh, they will win. Thanks. Um, I was, uh, I think I heard that you said you could implement a two-way peg that is based on fraud proofs, essentially, with this yes. mechanism. Um, would this, for example, uh, be a, how, how complex would a circuit have to be to uh, replicate something like the liquid peg, for example? Mm, great question. Um, so, 
there are essentially two ways to approach this. Either you build a circuit that is um, yeah, specifically crafted for this particular use case. And I would not really recommend that. Um, I think it's better to create um, a virtual machine, like some, somewhat like an abstract virtual machine. And um, then you have state commitments of that virtual machine, essentially like a Merkle tree over its memory containing both the data and the program and the program counter. And um, then you can have just um, commitments to state transitions, essentially one hash to the next hash, like state A, hash of state A to hash of state B. That would be a claim for the machine trans, uh, translated from state A to state B. And then we can have like a huge list of these state commitments, let's say state A to state B, state B to, to state C, state C to state D, and so on. And then the verifier can perform binary search over those state commitments, and then he will quickly find um, the first incorrect state transition of the VM, and then they can use a specifically crafted circuit to disprove that one state transition of the VM. And if we have that, then um, yeah, we can we can reduce the complexity for developers a lot because then we can have some kind of high-level language that compiles down to that um, virtual machine. And um, that will make it much easier to implement yeah, high-level applications such as a pack similar to Liquid, for example. And yeah, it would also be better to audit it because all auditors could focus on the same circuit. Everybody would just ver verify the circuit of that single VM. And um, not every developer would have to craft their own circuits and like essentially start from scratch. So two weeks, <laughs> at most, at most. <laughs> I mean, it's very hard to say. Uh, we are in a very early day. That idea is only not even two weeks old. And uh, yeah, uh, I just wanted to publish it to. Um, yeah, you know, get more people involved and uh, get more eyes on the idea. And um, yeah, now we are trying to to implement um, concrete things as soon as possible. And uh, yeah, hopefully we will have some kind of VM by the end of this month. Hopefully, some hacky version that is just yeah you know, for experimental purposes. Hopefully. So One thing. basically what you're saying is you'd uh, have a virtual machine in which you can run some programs, a program that uh, increases and decreases the funds under management of a PEG would, for example, be such a program. And if you can sufficiently simply express that in the VM, you could... I hope, well, someone paying someone else in the sidechain wouldn't uh necessarily require an on-chain transaction but maybe someone depositing or withdrawing from the sidechain would then uh, cause a state transition in conjunction with the payment on chain and that could be verified uh, basically by exclusion principle we couldn't find a fault with this yeah essentially that is one thing that I don't think we've emphasized here is, is the fact that there are no consensus changes required to use this technology. Oh. And so you can actually start working on this right now, like Robin mentioned. Um, so it's very interesting. In fact, later in the newsletter, there's a little proof of concept demonstration using BitVM for a certain type of, of circuit that someone put together. 
we can get to that into that a little bit later. Um, we noted in the newsletter that you know there needs to be a potential large amount of of data or processing that goes in before um, setting these setting up this sort of these gates. Um, and that's obviously, you know, quote unquote downside. Um, but maybe Robin, based on this idea being out all of, you know, two weeks, <laughs> have you gotten feedback on other potential downsides to this approach or, or improvements to, to the way the, the white paper was originally drafted? Um, yeah, like <laughs> I think like the main downsides are definitely that, um, it's not permissionless. You have to have this setup of um, multiple verifiers and a single prover, and uh, yeah, you have to trust that at least one of these verifiers is honest. That is by far the biggest downside. Um, the second downside, of course, as you just mentioned, is um, the setup cost. Um, and in general, <laughs> I think. Yeah, um, people would expect something like the EVM where um, everybody can easily interact with it. And um, I, su I suspect that this won't be the case. Um, it will be more like having um, the BitVM facilitating some kind of pack. And the good thing there is even though if that pack is super slow and super cumbersome to use, uh, it is sufficient to pack Bitcoin to some other chain. And once you have some kind of very trust-minimized two-way pack, then uh, that asset on the on the sidechain does have value or like is packed to, the, to Bitcoin's value. And as soon as you have that, then you can have uh, atomic swaps between the sidechain and uh, the main chain. Uh, normal users would just use those atomic swaps to like quickly swap between uh, one chain and the other. And um, yeah, the, 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 the other pack, like the real two-way pack, only something like liquidity providers would use it. Um, as it is very slow and maybe also expensive to use and expensive to set up and stuff. But uh, yeah, the main point is once it exists, then we can have BTC on sidechains. And then on that sidechain, we can do essentially everything that we are used to from, from other chains. And we can have essentially every feature that we would like to have. It sounds like a very interesting and, and promising idea. And I think the community is really excited about it. So thanks for putting your time towards it, Robin, and thanks for joining us and explaining it. Thanks a lot for having me. Um, like I mentioned, uh, we do talk about tap leaf circuits a bit later. You're welcome to stay on for that. Um, otherwise, mm -hmm. if you're busy, you're free to drop as well. I'll stay. Final news item for this week is proposed BIP for MUSIG2 fields in PSBTs. As a recap, PSBTs are a structured data format for the exchange of information about a Bitcoin transaction. Uh, and that includes a bunch of information, including the signature data. The initial version was PSBT v0 in BIP 174. And then PSBT v2 came along and allowed uh, additional inputs or outputs to be added to a PSBT. And now this proposed BIP adds MUSIG2. BIP-327, uh, multi-signature data to PSBTs. So these new fields apply to both PSBT v0 and v2, and thus this doesn't appear to be a PSBT v3 proposal. It just adds fields to the previous PS, 
BT versions and the MUSIG2 related fields that are in the proposal apply to inputs and outputs. So for inputs, the the proposed fields are participant public keys, the MUSIG2 public nonce, participant partial signatures, and for outputs, it's just uh, participant public keys. So that's what's being proposed here by Andrew Chow and the Bitcoin Dev mailing list with his draft BIP. Merch and guests, I don't know if anybody has a comment or addition to that summary. Uh, I I think that's pretty much it. Uh, if you want to construct a music payment with multiple participants and you don't have a completely signed transaction yet, you need a way to transfer that um partial state like yeah this seems to be a approach on how to transfer that uh, intermediate state we noted in the newsletter that aj towns was asking about adapter signature related fields if they would also be added as part of this bip and it sounded like that would potentially be a future separate bip as it wasn't part of the consideration for the original proposal Next section from the newsletter is our client and services section that we do monthly. The first item of six is BIP 329 Python library being released. So back in newsletter 215, we covered the proposed BIP to standardize the wallet label format. We also discussed that with the BIP author, Craig Raw in podcast 215. So if you're curious about what this wallet label stuff is, refer back to that. That proposal later became BIP 329, which includes the ability to label different pieces of Bitcoin-related data, including addresses, transactions, pub keys, inputs, outputs, and XPubs. And so you can attach some arbitrary label um, if you want to say where it's from or what it's for or some note about it. The label ability gives you to do that. And this library that we covered this week is a set a Python code to read, write, encrypt, and decrypt any BIP329 compliant wallet label files. So it's an ability to interact with that file format using Python. Next item we covered was LN testing tool Doppler being announced. So Doppler is a DSL, which is a domain-specific language, which is a, a way to um, write something for a particular business use case, in this case, Lightning and Bitcoin nodes and transactions in an abbreviated way. So it's a special language for constructing topologies of Bitcoin and Lightning nodes and how they are interacting with one another. So the the relations between those nodes and then also the ability then to have on-chain and off-chain payments designated in that DSL. And the purpose of this tool is for lightning testing. And there's been a few related projects recently. Um, This sort of idea may ring a bell. We spoke in newsletter 269 and podcast 269 about the SimLN tool which generates realistic lightning payment activity, which is not quite the same, but you can kind of feel the same energy towards wanting to create um, testing data, testing infrastructure around lightning. And then also in newsletter 265 and podcast 265, we talked about the scaling lightning testing toolkit 
And we spoke about that with Henrik from Torque and what their goals are there as well. So if you're curious about those alternative or I guess they're not necessarily in competition, but different types of lightning testing tools out there. Next piece of software was Cold Card, the firmware 5.2.0 being released, which added version 2 PSBT support for our discussion earlier about PSBTs. Also adds a feature to allow for multiple seeds on the same hardware device, and then also adds additional BIP 39 uh, features, particularly around BIP 39 passphrases in various um, usages within that firmware as well. Next piece of software was one I alluded to earlier, which is Tapleaf Circuits, which is a demonstration of BitVM, and it's using these Bristol circuits within the BitVM approach that we spoke about earlier. Um, I am not familiar with Bristol circuits, and um, I think this is an interesting demonstration, but I'm not sure if, Robin, you have any insights on what was put together with this demonstration. Yeah, um, Bristol circuits are just um, a format to um, express binary circuits. Um, you probably have seen it before. Like I didn't know the name either, but when I saw um, uh, an example of a Bristol circuit, I, I, I remember that I had seen that before. Um, yeah, and what Super Testnet did there was, um, yeah, that he implemented a couple simple circuits like addition, or I think also the tic-tac-toe circuit, and uh, yeah, a couple other circuits. And what's cool about it is that there are already some high-level tools that allow you to compile more or less high-level language, like Python, something like that, um, down to Bristol circuits. And then Bristol circuits, you can easily compiled to Bitcoin script. Pretty cool that before we could even cover BitVM in the newsletter that there was already a proof of concept from um, somebody who's not even affiliated with the proposal, to my knowledge, um, and already applied some of that research. And so it's pretty cool to see how quickly things can move. He's somewhat affiliated. So okay. uh, I mentioned him in the paper as well, like he's in the acknowledgments and uh, yeah. Um, he was in that group. We had a Telegram group called uh, Hacker ZKP Verifier into Bitcoin. And uh, he was part of that group. And he definitely inspired uh, a lot of things about BitVM. Next piece of software that we highlighted was the Samurai Wallet 0.99.98i being released. It added additional support for PSBTs in the form of animated QR code scanning, um, some additional labeling with regards to UTXOs, quote, you can mark any associated change UTXOs from your broadcasted transaction as do not spend to aid with UTXO management, unquote, and some additional batch sending features. Batch sending was already possible, but now you can do that in a more programmatic way via JSON instead of just in the GUI. And also there's some QR code format around the import feature as well. Final piece of software is some signing device firmware titled uh, named Crux. It's, quote, open source firmware that enables anyone to build their own Bitcoin signing device via off-the-shelf parts. And so the firmware then converts those devices into air-gapped devices that can sign transactions for multi-signature or single-signature wallets. And there was a note in 
Um, the README for this project, quote, this software has not been audited by a third party, use at your own risk. And in this latest version of the firmware, version 23.09.0, the release notes did state that new features are finally coming out of beta and making their way into this stable release. So pretty cool there. I haven't played with it, but it sounds interesting. Moving on to the releases and release candidates section, we've grouped two Bitcoin Core related release candidates into a single item here, Bitcoin Core 24.2 RC2 and Bitcoin Core 25.1 RC1. Merch, I think you have some commentary on these release candidates. Yeah, so 25.1 is actually released now. I think 24.2 is on the second release candidate. Uh, generally, the point releases are only for backporting um, bug fixes. We do not release new features in point releases usually. Uh, so uh, here, one of the things that stood out to me on both of these is that fee estimation, there was a fix backported to avoid serving stale fee estimates. I believe that was related to the node being offline for a few hours, but coming online before the history of the transactions and their mempool had completely timed out. And then it would happily serve up uh, fee estimates from a few hours ago. And uh, there was a fix for that. And then there just seemed to be a bunch of other smaller fixes, something about bash 32 address handling. And um, yeah, so if you're, uh, if you are someone that plays that depends on Bitcoin Core software in production use and is interested in not upgrading to the new version directly, but maybe upgrading to a point release of a prior version, you might want to start playing around with this in your testing environment and let us know if you find any issues. As we move to the notable code and documentation changes section, I'll take the opportunity to solicit any questions, either at request speaker access or comment on the thread associated with this Twitter space. And we'll try to get to your question by the end of the podcast here. Normally, we don't bring on special guests just for a poll request, but I think this one was interesting enough to bring in Antoine to talk about Bitcoin Core 27.255, which, quote, ports Miniscript to Tapscript. Antoine, what does that mean? Yeah, so Miniscript, as probably most of the listeners already know, is a framework for safely using Bitcoin Script, uh, as in you'll be able to use more features available already today in Bitcoin Script. However, it was designed for P2WSH for SegWit version zero. And with Taproot and uh, TapScript, which specifies the, the scripts in the, the first leaf versions for, for Taproot, some of the properties changed for, for the script. So Miniscript, the framework had to be adapted uh, with small tweaks in order to be able to use Miniscript with TypeScript as well. So using Miniscript for TypeRate. And we noted, oh, go ahead, Merch. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in to give a little more background on Miniscript in the first place. So what comes together here is output script descriptors and uh, Miniscript. So 
probably a lot of you have heard about output descriptors in the past few years. Um, they are sort of a um, a better or newer take on a concept called extended pub key. So an output script descriptor allows you to describe a whole set of output scripts that all um, follow as the same recipe. And other than an XPub where you only encode a private, uh, sorry, a, a public key uh, and a chain of public keys that derive from it, uh, with a output script descriptor, you can have more complex scripts. And one way with which you can describe these output scripts uh, in your um, range descriptor is with Miniscript, which is a higher level description language that um, is human readable and describes what outcome you're trying to achieve and then can be used to compile down to uh, a script primitive uh, in the actual Bitcoin transactions. Antoine, if I'm butchering that, please jump in and, and correct me. But what what this generally allows is that we can um, have way more complex output scripts, but back them up uh, in a similar fashion to how we used to back up XPubs. Uh, so you can, for example, have a, a set of um, outputs that after a certain timeout becomes bendable by a smaller quorum of keys. And uh, you can define that in a single um, output script descriptor and another wallet that also implements support for output script descriptors and miniscript can import that and also recover and spend those funds. So uh, there are a handful of wallets that are already working on support, of course, Bitcoin Core. I also know that uh, there's uh, Rob Hamilton uh, has a wallet that, that works a lot with miniscript and Antoine himself works on Liana Wallet, which also is heavily integrated with Miniscript. So uh, basically, we we are in the bigger picture establishing a standard on how we can have more complex output scripts easily backupable. Anything that you'd add there, Antoine? Yeah, no, it was a pretty good description. Also, um, maybe trying to raise your awareness that even if you're only using a single key, you could always rely on implicit information, uh, such as the absence of a, of a corresponding output descriptors, just to assume that you always ever use this key in single key scripts. But as the number of single key scripts augments, the number of um, types of scripts that you have to break for to recover backup increases. And it's also still always relying on, on implicit information. So I would advise always having an output script or even for non-complex scripting. Yeah, in case that wasn't completely clear, um, the XPUB doesn't tell you what type of output script is it associates with. So even if you find an XPUB, you might need to try all types of outputs in order to find your funds and maybe a bunch of different derivation paths because different wallets over years have used different uh, derivation paths to even for single sig and with an output script descriptor it would be very explicit on what keys are exactly being derived and what output scripts they're being used for antoine question for you in relation to uh, liana wallet 
and some of the other work you guys are working on at Wizard Sardine. Do you plan to use uh, mini tap scripts in Liana? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for now, we are still waiting on signing devices support for Taproot. So pretty much like we waited for mini scripts, we need now the signers to also uh, support mini tap script, but it's much smaller of an upgrade. But yes, we, we do definitely plan on using Taproot. Basically, if we could, we would have gone Taproot only since the beginning because right now in using Liana, you are, you, you are having multiple spanning paths. So you have one path that, one path that is immediately, immediately available and you have one to N additional path that are time locks for recovery. You probably don't want to have the recovery path hit the chain before you actually need them. And that's what Taproot enables. For privacy reasons, for cost reasons, uh, you you probably don't want people to know what are your time locks. You don't want to be sticking out because you're using special time locks that nobody else is using. so yeah, we did, it would definitely be a great improvement to Vienna, and we are we are definitely going to make use of it. It's great to see Bitcoin businesses involved with innovating the technology and contributing to the technology. In in this instance, Wizard Sardine, Liana, and the work that you've done here, we've highlighted in the past as well the work that Brendan Black. Reardon Code did at BitGo with regards to their work on Musig. And so it's, you know, obviously this is all a voluntary space and you have the right to sit back and and wait for things to come. Um, But there's also folks in there getting in there and, and, you know, making the changes that would help Bitcoin help their piece of software and their business. So applaud Wizard Sardine and company for stepping in and, and putting effort towards this. Next PR we have is to the Eclair repository, 2703. And this is a change that um, oh, I, I have a couple quotes I'll, I'll pull from the release notes and the PR itself. Um, quote, some channels only have a few sats available to send, but are not currently disabled, leading other peers to try to use them and fail. We now lower the maximum HTLC amount when the balance goes below a configurable threshold. This should reduce the number of failed payment attempts and benefit the network. And another interesting point from the release notes was um, Eclair used to disable a channel when there was no liquidity on the Eclair side so that other nodes would stop trying to use it. But other lightning implementations use disabled channels as a sign that the peer is offline. So in order to be consistent with other implementations, Eclair now disables channels when the peer is offline and signal that a channel has very low balance by setting the HTLC maximum MSAT value to a low value. LND 7267 makes it possible to create routes to blinded paths within LND. In uh, newsletter 269, we covered LND's ability to support sending payments to blinded paths and allowing receiving payments to pass where a single hop was hidden or blinded. And so now you can actually create those routes to blinded paths. And this brings LND 
closer to full support for being able to make blinded payments. So that's good to see. And the last PR for this week is to the BDK repository, 1041. Quote, add Bitcoin DRPC chain source module. So essentially in BDK, there's the ability to have different sources of blockchain data. I believe they support Electrum and Esplora as already baked in chain sources. And now the Bitcoin core blockchain data is an option through the Bitcoin DRPC as of the merge of this PR. Merch, Robin, Instagibs, Antoine, anything before we wrap up? I maybe have a question for Instagibs. Sorry, I, I was looking at something else for a moment when you brought up the Eclair thing. Um, I thought that when you update the maximum HTLC amount that uh, triggers an channel rebroadcast and you can only do one of those every hour or so. So how effective is that as a mechanism to uh, signal that a smaller payment can be routed through a channel if you use the HTLC max amount as, as the cap to signal that your channel is lopsided? And isn't that also a privacy leak? Yeah, I mean, I think you know as much as I do. I've, I haven't touched the gossip, really. So, I mean, it sounds reasonable what you're saying. Okay, sorry for the late uh, reply, Mike. <laughs> yeah, there was a couple of things noted in that PR as of ways to signal the low liquidity, either a, a very large HTLC minimum MSAT or a very low HTLC maximum MSAT or just really high relay fees. Um, I can't answer that your, your question directly, but there was some discussion about the different ways to signal this. I don't see any other questions, so we can wrap up. Oh, Antoine, did you have something to say? Yeah, no, I'm good. Thanks for having me. And if anybody has any question, I'm also happy to answer them now or after in comments to, to the podcast, whatever. Uh, more into into the weeds of the implementation of mini TypeScript if anybody is curious, I guess. Oh, we do have a question. Let's see. Perhaps unrelated question. What is the UX importing a descriptor wallet? BSMS file? Um, so... Right now in Liana, what we use is just a text input. So you would copy paste a string of text to import a descriptor uh, to import a wallet. Looks like that's it for questions. Thanks to Antoine for joining us and Robin as our special guests and Instagibs as our omnipresent expert who can chime in. And as always to Merch, my co-host. And thank you all for joining. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Enjoy your lunch.